Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, your American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our awesome co-hosts, Dr. Sajin Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. And we have a special guest today, Mr. Jordan Golding. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about tachydysrhythmias. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of Americans' family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So Jordan, why don't you tell us about yourself? My name is Jordan Golding. Um, I am an EMT for American Ambulance. Um, I wear a couple of different hats. I'm a field training officer. I've been doing that for uh, almost two years now. Um, and I'm also a member of the peer support team here at American Ambulance, taking care of each other in the field. So Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about your case. Yeah, so this was actually a really interesting case. Um, we got a call to uh, an urgent care for a middle-aged gentleman that was uh, having some weakness. Uh, when we arrived, a provider met us in the doorway. She was like, I'm so glad you guys are here. Uh, this gentleman came in. He was feeling a little weak. Um, apparently he had multiple like near syncopal events today and this has never happened before. At that point I was thinking like common, uh, syncope etiologies, shock states and, uh, different things like that. Uh, orthostatic hypotension, even something, something vital signs wise, reversible causes. Before I could even think that far down the line, she hands us this like low resolution EKG and like it, it didn't need to be very high resolution, just unmistakable, like monomorphic VTAC. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I think we may have figured out why he's feeling a little weak. Um, so this was all 10, 15 seconds. And we walked in and upon looking at the gentleman, he actually looked fairly well appearing. He's approximately like 250, 300 pounds. He's this larger gentleman, um, but his skin looked great. He was pink. He was he looked dry. Um, so without like further investigation, I was like, oh, did he convert or is we still what's what's going on here? And uh, my partner had walked over at that time and felt like a like a thready pulse, and he was like, okay, well, we should just you know get him on the gurney, do more investigating in the ambulance. It was a very small kind of cramped exam room, and so we got the gurney all the way up to the door, and he was like, you know, I can take those three feet, like I take three steps to that gurney. When he stood, he became very pale, very sweaty. Uh, we, we assisted him right over to the gurney. As he was sitting down, I was already lifting his shirt to place the pads. Um, and sure enough, even on our, our cardiac monitor, it showed that same monomorphic VTAC at like 220, I believe the number was. I quickly tried to get a blood pressure on him. I was able to auscultate it. And it, uh, if I remember correctly, it was fairly good. It was like, I, I want to say it was like 98 systolic blood pressure, um, which was wonderful. And so we, we pulled him out um, uh, to the ambulance. And while we were in there, my partner 
was just so very calm and he's just explaining everything. And it was, it was, it was a very calming therapeutic moment, I think for the patient, because he said, so this is what we're going to do. You know, I'm going to place this IV in your arm and your heart's going really quick. So I'm going to give you some medication. It's going to help you relax. And then we're going to get you out of this dangerous rhythm. And so he really just explained everything to this patient, preparing him for the cardioversion process. It was pretty remarkable. So he was a large gentleman. I think he got um, a total of the eight milligrams of the Versed. Uh, so he got like two, four milligram doses. And then as the patient, you know, kind of relaxed, uh, that was when we started with the cardioversion. The first one uh, was unsuccessful. So he went to the second level of the of the energy, and that one converted him to like a bigemini rhythm. And then uh, he got a total of the 150 of amiodarone, and then that really kind of suppressed his PVCs. And by the time we got to the hospital, he kind of groggily was waking up, and he was like, so how, how'd I do? And uh, he was actually quite chipper about everything. And at that point, he was in a normal sinus rhythm, really produ- uh, perfusing well, and he had a great blood pressure, and the PVCs were frequent, but they were he was certainly out of the dangerous rhythm. Now, did he well. have a past medical history that was concerning for cardiac or anything that could tip off while he why he's in VTAC? Yeah, you know, I can't recall if he had any significant cardiac history. I mean, uh, I know that he had hypertension and diabetes. It's possible that he had some kind of underlying ACS thing and maybe that contributed. Uh, I didn't know if he had a previous infarct or anything like that. That's a great case. And, and also talking about how calm your paramedic partner was and handling that. I think a lot of people on the inside would be very anxious because it's like, is this going to deteriorate into a non, you know, perfusing rhythm? Are they yeah. going to be fib or are they, you know, so that kind of is um, a hairy situation. So good job. Yeah, he was very calm and the patient responded so well to him and was like, hey, you know, I trust this guy. Whatever he's got to do, he's going to take care of me. It was pretty, it was pretty awesome. Any questions from the group? I think that's a great case and just all the stuff that you guys did and pretty much just delivered this normal package to the to the emergency department. I love that because you're like, we already did everything. <laughs> all right, here you go. So great case. Like we said, today we're going to be talking about tachydysrhythmias, which in all honesty, when you see that on a monitor, can induce tachycardia in yourself. And there's a lot of different causes of tachydysrhythmias. You know, some of the the things that we always get really worried about are monomorphic or polymorphic VTACs, um, VFib, but it can be a variant of SVT, AFib with RVR, sinus tachycardia, artifact from a moving ambulance. A lot of things can cause this. So because there's so many different causes, we got to narrow it down to what really matters. And that is going to be stable or unstable. So any arrhythmia, just think about this. Stable, you have time, you have medications. Unstable, you're going to have to use electricity. And don't be afraid of electricity. I know we get nervous when we want to cardiovert somebody or get nervous when you've got to um, shock them. But just remember, electricity is our friend. If you have someone who's in sinus tack and you accidentally cardiovert them, could you think they're in an SVT that's unstable? As long as you sink it, it would not hurt them. I mean, they would say, ouch, but it wouldn't hurt their heart. And it can be difficult in these rush situations to really interpret the EKG and then think about the underlying cause. But that's really important. We're going to simplify things. So hopefully we can give you a good basis to not be freaked out and not induce your own tachycardia when seeing these things on the monitor. Sorry, I have to run away from this episode, you guys, but I have to actually go get my uh, COVID uh, immunization right now. It's my first injection. So wish me luck. Good luck. That's awesome. Good luck. Thanks. 
So how often does this happen? Um, you know, according to some studies, they say that VTAC itself is pretty rare. So there's fewer than 200,000 cases in the United States every year. It's very rare in all age groups, except for those over age 60. So Sajin, why don't you help us break down uh, these different rhythms? Let's talk about the narrow, complex, regular ones first. Yeah, so all of these tacky dysrhythmias, we're going to break down into either narrow or wide, and then regular or irregular. So that gives us four different options. And each of those four different options, of course, we're just going down the same stable or unstable pathway. So starting with narrow, complex, regular rhythms, our most common one is going to be sinus tachycardia. What do we see on EKG with sinus tachycardia? We see a P wave before every QRS and a QRS after every P wave. Now, it can be subtle and hard to distinguish when rates are getting pretty fast. Above 150, probably have a really hard time looking for those little P waves, especially on a little monitor. And we typically think of the rates for sinus tachycardia between about 100 to 150, maybe 160. Rates higher than this still might be sinus tachycardia, but we should also be thinking about other rhythms and other things beyond this point. I always like to bring up, um, just as a baseline, that it's usually 220 minus your age is the highest your heart rate can be and still be in sinus tach. So obviously, if it's a 10-year-old, 220 minus their age, they can have a heart rate of 210 and still be in sinus tach. But if they are 70 years old, 210 minus 70 is a much difference. And so um, that's when you know if you have a 70-year-old that has a heart rate of 150, this is never sinus tech. And when we think of why this person's in sinus tech, really it could be anything. We often see hypotensive patients in shock with tachycardia. Sepsis or infection can cause tachycardia. Myocardial infarctions can cause sinus tachycardia. PE can cause sinus tachycardia. Pneumonia, pneumothorax even just pain, medication ingestion or overdose, intoxication, stimulants, methamphetamines, caffeine, anything can cause sinus tachycardia. And really our treatment for sinus tachycardia is treating the underlying cause, what's causing them to have a fast heart rate. We don't necessarily need to treat the rhythm, we're just going to treat the underlying cause. All right, let's go to supraventricular tachycardia. Um, So the definition has always kind of bothered me, you know, any narrow complex tachycardia that is technically supraventricular, but that's why it's narrow, right? It's coming from the atria. But we often mean a reentrant tachycardia that is not following the normal electrical pathway of the heart. So on EKG, you're going to see a narrow QRS without obvious P waves. And uh, sometimes the P waves are there, but they're buried. So they're like uh, retrograde or buried. Um, But you'll see a fast rate. You'll see it over 160 usually. And um, slower rates that are SVT or supraventricular tachycardia, slower than 160, they should make you think, is there something else really going on that's hiding there? This can be from stress, from shock. You can see it in heart failure, thyroid disease, alcohol use, stimulants. Here locally in Fresno, we see it a lot with meth use. Um, So once again, our management plan is always going to go back down to is it stable or unstable. So if it's unstable, that they have hypotension or they're altered, they have chest pain and shortness of breath associated with this supraventricular tachycardia, this fast, narrow heart rate. Now this is narrow and regular. And then they're, they're stable, things you can do. So this means that they're not altered, they're not hypotensive. First, you can attempt a Valsalva maneuver. Um, so the Valsalva maneuver induces a temporary slowing of the SA nodal activity, and that slows down AV nodal conduction by stimulating the baroreceptors in the aorta. And this triggers a reflex increase of the vagus nerve. 
So a fancy way of saying it makes you vagal. And so that makes you slow down your heart rate. What's your favorite Valsalva maneuver, Danielle? Um, one I like to do is I like to take a syringe. I take out the plunger and then I have them blow against a syringe. Really, I'm just trying to have them increase their negative thoracic pressures. But if they're actually blowing into something, then I feel like the patient has an activity to do that they understand. What about yours? Yeah, I like to do that too. We do a modified version of that in the gurney if the patient's tolerating it is we have them blow into the syringe and then we lean them back onto the gurney in a supine position and lift their legs up. And that really accentuates the Valsalva maneuver and the vagus stimulation to hopefully slow their rate down. And we had a pediatric SVT the other day, and we did a bag of ice on the baby's face. I know that seems weird, but you um, take a bag of ice and you put it in a in a plastic bag, and then that coldness, and you cover the baby's nose and mouth for a brief second, but it makes the baby like take a big breath and hold it. And that actually popped them out of SVT just by doing that. Right. So holding your breath, bearing down, uh, blowing into something that provides some resistance, all those things will, will help you Valsalva. The next step in management is medication. The medication we think of when we think of SVT or reentrant tachycardia is adenosine. So adenosine interacts with A1 receptors on the surface of cardiac cells, activating potassium channels and causing an increase in potassium conductance, and it also indirectly reduces calcium into the cells. Basically, all that means is that we're slowing AV nodal conduction, similar to the effects we see with Valsalva, but more with a medication. And the one thing about this drug I always find um, interesting in the emergency department and out in the field is that you got to put it in rapidly. You know, every other drug we kind of push slowly or we do it over a minute, but um, adenosine is going to be administered by a rapid IV injection over one to two seconds. And you want to be at the closest peripheral site to the heart as you can. Um, The initial dose is six milligrams, which then can be followed by a maximum single dose of 12 milligrams if the six milligram is not successful. It's a little difficult in the pre-hospital setting, but a lot of studies now are showing really the best way to administer this is using a stopcock um, on a very proximal IV. So if you can have your syringe of adenosine with a normal saline flush attached to the same IV, and we lift the patient's arm that has the IV up in the air to give them the benefit of gravity bringing blood down to their heart, and we administer it as fast an injection as possible, followed by a normal saline flush. And this can be quite dramatic. Prepare your patients for what they're about to experience. I think about the description in my medical school textbook where it says, side effects, impending sense of doom. (laughs) And you really can see that in a patient's face when they start to feel this medication. They often feel as though they're going to die. It can be because they actually experience a transient asystole, or they feel like their heart is going to stop. That's not always common, but it can happen. Some of the more common side effects are facial flushing, shortness of breath, feeling of inducing palpitations, and then chest pain and lightheadedness. So you should really explain to the patient what you're about to give them. And of course, before, while, or after you do this treatment, try to save a rhythm strip for the hospital staff if possible. For any arrhythmia that we see in the field, it's helpful to show the hospital staff what you saw, what you did, and how it changed with any intervention that you did. So giving adenosine in the pre-hospital setting has been studied quite a bit. One of the bigger studies that we found is 2014, done in Australia, about 933 patients in SVT, 
and paramedics correctly identified SVT in 96.7% of the patients, which is great. Now, 31% spontaneously converted while in the paramedics' care. That's great, too. Valsalva was undertaken by about 24% of the patients, and it worked about 27% of the time. So out of the 360 attempts, it worked about 100 times. Now, in their protocol, they also used verapamil, which converted about 3% of patients. And then adenosine was used in about 5% of patients, and that converted patients about 80% of the time. Of course, they also had a synchronized cardioversion arm, and they only needed that in about four patients on the first attempt, and that worked. Ultimately, about 50% of the patients still remained in SVT by the time they got to the hospital. There were no reported adverse events other than some feelings of discomfort for the patient that resolved by the time they got to the hospital. So generally well-tolerated, there's good evidence that it works and good evidence that EMTs and paramedics are correctly identifying this rhythm and treating it appropriately. And just know that in the hospital, we know that 50% of the patients are going to arrive still in SVT. Do not think it's a failure that if your dentistine didn't work or your cardioversion attempt didn't work, that's okay. It just gives us another jumping off point for where to keep going um, next. All right, let's jump to narrow and irregular rhythm. So the other two we talked about, the sinus tack and the SVT, remember, were narrow and regular. So we're going to jump to narrow and irregular cardiac rhythms. So the first one that comes to mind is atrial fibrillation. So on EKG, you're going to see an irregularly irregular narrow rhythm. It has a very wavy baseline. Something that also helps me determine if it's regular or irregular is listening to the sound of the monitor or the zoll. To me, I have a musical background. I guess that may help me. But I can tell if the heart rate is in a certain rhythm that repeats or if it sounds really out of time, really syncopated or not in a normal, regular rate. And that helps me. And the rate of atrial fibrillation you're going to see is usually ranging from the low 100s, like 110 to about 180. And it's going to jump around. Um, So one thing I know is when you're in sinus tech, and it's narrow and regular, it's not going to change. You know, it's going to be at 125. It's going to be at 135. It's not going to jump around. Where an AFib is going to be 110, 170, 135, all over the place. And that jumping around will clue you in this is atrial fibrillation. There's different causes of this. It could be a PE, um, a pulmonary embolism. Thyroid disease, hyperthyroidism can cause this. Heart failure, or CHF, has this big, weak, floppy heart that causes a lot of atrial fibrillation. Alcohol use can cause this also. We call that um, holiday heart, right? You drink a bunch of alcohol on your holiday, and then the next day you wake up and you're an AFib. Let's go through the management of this. Also, for it's unstable or stable. So you're going to say, okay, this is narrow and irregular. We think we're an AFib. It's irregular. It's unstable. So are they hypotensive? Are they altered? They have chest pain or shortness of breath. Of course, unstable. You're going to go to electricity. If they're stable, um, there's many different things um, we do in the hospital to help control the rate. So even though we have a lot of tricks we can do and start different medications on the stable atrial fibrillation patient, really in the pre-hospital setting, we just want you to monitor them and reassess their perfusion status to make sure they don't get unstable. And then if unstable, you know, you're going to jump to um, calling the base and looking at cardioversion, um, synchronized cardioversion once they become unstable. But if they're stable, you're just going to monitor and transport. Um, some of these people have been in this rhythm for a really long time. They maybe just started noticing the palpitations. So one thing we worry about is doing harm to patients. And so we want to do no harm first. And so for AFib, we got to figure out when they went into this rhythm. Now, if they were some with no medical problems, drink a ton of alcohol and woke up and they say, yes, at 8 a.m., I started having palpitations. That's somebody that in the emergency 
room might have a synchronized cardio version done electively. But you have a great history, they know exactly when the palpitation started. Now, there's another patient that says, oh, I have these off and on. I get them all the time. They last for short periods of time. I happen to have more palpitations today, and that's why I called the ambulance. That person, we're not going to cardiovert until you get an echo and they get anticoagulated. Um, so when your heart is in atrial fibrillation, the blood can pool in the atria. And so when the blood pools, it has a tendency to clot. And that clot can dislodge, enter the bloodstream, and send emuli, send fl- flicks of this clot all over the body. So many patients get placed on blood thinning medications to prevent some of the worst complications like stroke. So for, remember that any patient you bring to the emergency department, if you see here or notice a fib in their history, try to pay attention to see if they're on any blood thinning medications. This could be like Eliquis or Prodaxa or Warfarin. And this makes a big difference um, for a number of chief complaints and is always worth noting to the hospital staff. So the other option in the pre-hospital setting, some EMS systems have incorporated either a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker to assist with rate control for these patients in atrial fibrillation that are stable. In our system, we have a protocol for administering verapamil, which is a calcium channel blocker that can help slow the rate down. Now, this does require a base hospital physician order, but can be given in the patients with a very fast heart rate, and we are worried about them becoming potentially unstable. The dose of verapamil is 5 milligrams IV over 2 minutes, and that dose can be repeated if necessary. So in the emergency department on these patients who we don't know when the AFib started or um, we're just trying to control the rate, so we're okay that they're in AFib, we just want to be less than 100 beats per minute, we'll start some IV um, calcium channel blockers are very common. So you'll see diltiazam, you see verapamil, or if they're on beta blockers at home, you'll see some of the ER docs go straight to another beta blocker and kind of just stick with the, if they've already on, if they're already beta blocked. And the reason why this can be a little tenuous is that medications that control the heart rate can also drop the blood pressure. And in these patients who aren't squeezing very well, their atria are fibrillating, so just flopping around, not giving the ventricles a nice, solid, coordinated atrial kick that the ventricle can squeeze out to the rest of the body, um, it can be very dangerous to give any medication that drops the blood pressure even more. All right, let's jump to atrial flutter. Um, So Sajan, why don't you start us off with that? So atrial flutter is very similar to atrial fibrillation. The atria are not conducting in a normal way. The heartbeats are not starting in the sinus node. They're actually re-entering usually around the right atrium. And this happens very fast. It's a circular re-entrant pattern in the atrium. And some of those beats get conducted and some of them don't. Typically, the atrial rate is about 300 beats per minute. Now, if all of those were conducted, the ventricle would be beating at 300 beats per minute, and that would be very bad for the heart. Typically, what we see is maybe a two-to-one block. So for every two atrial beats, we get one actually conducted to the ventricles. So that gives us a rate usually about 130 to 160, about half of the 300 that most patients typically end up in with their atrial flutter. Now, on EKG, instead of a wavy, fibrillating baseline, we see more regular P waves, but they can be sawtooth waves, which means they look like a shark fin. Very steep rise with a gradual decline, steep rise with a gradual decline. And again, these can be conducted usually every other beat, but it can be scattered, which can make it irregular. And the causes of atrial flutter 
are similar to those for atrial fibrillation, heart failure, alcohol use, ischemia, heart attacks, previous myocarditis can cause this, anything that causes structural damage to the heart that stretches the heart, interrupts the normal electrical pathway can cause a patient to enter into atrial flutter. Now, I always find atrial flutter hard to deal with because sometimes it can be irregular and sometimes it can be regular. So I feel like we do this very academic debate, you know, is this a fib or is this a flutter? Is it hiding? Are the flutter waves hiding in there? Um, but the greatest thing to know is that you're going to treat them the same way. You're going to rate control them, especially if they're stable. If they're unstable, you're going to go to electricity. Now that we finished talking about all the narrow complex tachycardias, let's jump to the wide complex tachycardias, which is kind of like the case we heard earlier. Now, wide complex tachycardias are scary. The most important is ventricular tachycardia. Uh, this can be difficult to assess because sometimes the patients can have a pulse. A lot of times they don't. And really the finding on the EKG is a very regular wide complex tachycardia. As mentioned in our case, typically the rate's above 200. And that's a real ventricular tachycardia. And I would hope that you don't actually see it on the EKG, that you see it on the rhythm strip before you get the EKG and you treat it before you get the EKG. Because these um, VTAC sometimes will not, this is a shockable rhythm that you can save the patient and get them out of this rhythm. It can degrade into a non-shockable rhythm or to a more unstable rhythm. And so time is of the essence here. Now, there are several causes, potential causes, for someone to enter into, into ventricular tachycardia. Myocardial ischemia, an acute heart attack, or a heart attack that happened long ago. Heart failure, hypoxia, trauma, and ventricular tachycardia can be a cause of sudden cardiac death. So we really have to be really, really, really cognizant of how this patient looks now and how they could potentially decline. All right, and so management, I love that. We're just going to check for a pulse first, right? You see this on the rhythm, just make sure they're still with you. And then by definition, they're almost always unstable. I mean, very rarely you have a, quote, a stable VTAC. But if you have stable, they're not going to last that very long. So there's gonna, they cannot perfuse. If you can imagine if your heart is beating over 200 times a minute, there's no time for filling. So it's just a pump that's squeezing, 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 right? It's trying to flush your toilet constantly without letting it time to fill. So your body needs the blood to fill the heart so it can pump it out. So if it's just squeezing and squeezing super fast and it doesn't have any filling time, the heart will have no cardiac output. You won't be able to put any volume out. You'll get lack of provision to your brain. You'll get hypotensive. So unstable, you're going to do synchronized cardioversion, right? You're going to see they're hypotensive, they're altered, they can have chest pain or shortness of breath. Amiodarone is also an option for uh, chemical cardioversion. So let's actually go over ventricular tachycardia with a pulse, the protocol that we have in our system. So of course, after assessing our ABCs, securing our airway, we're going to place the patient on oxygen. Start by nasal cannula and quickly uptitrate to high flow if necessary. Obtain IV access and constantly reassess this patient. Remember that this is an inherently unstable rhythm. If they have a pulse now, you're very lucky and we need to treat them as quickly as possible. So in an unstable patient with a heart rate greater than 150 beats per minute, and they have evidence of ventricular tachycardia, we can give them a anxiolytic or an analgesic in our system that's midazolam or fentanyl. And then we're going to synchronize cardiovert this patient. Our first 
cardio version is going to be at 100 joules, and we can repeat this at 200 joules or greater if our machine allows. I just want to make that um, comment about synchronizing and how important synchronizing is. So remember, synchronizing is that you're telling the shock to be delivered right on the QRS, right? And so when you push that button to sync it on your monitor, you're going to see that line appear and it's going to go over every QRS. And you always want to sync it. If you don't sync it, you run the risk of shocking in between a QRS. And then they call that an R on T phenomenon, but just a fancy word for it, you're going to like kick them in the heart at the wrong sequence, and that could put them to an asystole, to a cardiac standstill. And so we always want to do no harm to the patient. So this is one mistake that could do harm to the patient. So I just want to put that little caveat on there. Always remember to sync it when they have a pulse. So after our cardioversion, we're going to continue to reassess the patient. And the next step would be amiodarone. So our amiodarone dose for a patient with a pulse is 150 milligrams IV push over 10 minutes. And then we're going to cardiovert again. And then we're going to give amiodarone again. And we're going to continue that process until hopefully we've reached the hospital and we have some backup. Or they've converted and you fixed them. (laughs) (laughs) And now, of course, if a patient is stable or borderline, we're going to continue down a very similar pathway. We're going to maybe start with amiodarone as opposed to a cardioversion, but we're going to have pads on the patient. We're going to be constantly reassessing and constantly monitoring for the possibility that we have to cardiovert this patient right away. Now there's a separate protocol for pulseless ventricular tachycardia, and this is cardiac arrest. This is something that we are all familiar with. If you've gone through ACLS course, even a BLS course. This is what we train for. So of course, we're going to do an ABC assessment. We're going to secure our airway, and then we're going to attach a Zoll or a defibrillator, and we're going to defibrillate as soon as possible. Ventricular tachycardia is one of our main shockable rhythms, and it probably carries a greater prognosis than some of the other cardiac arrest rhythms. And we're going to treat these patients as quickly as possible because the mortality goes down by 10% for every minute sooner that we shock the patient. Yeah, so electricity is our friend. We want to get those pads on as soon as possible with the invention of AEDs and um, putting those in like, you know, uh, hospitals um, in big areas, big businesses, putting them on everywhere you can go. Getting the bystander to put an AED on somebody um, is really saving lives. And then, of course, we're going to give our epinephrine in our standard code situation. And if they remain in VTAC, this is when we give our pulseless dose of amiodarone, which is double the dose that we use for a patient with a pulse. So in a pulseless VTAC, we give 300 milligrams IV amiodarone, and that's just a push. And of course, we are continuing to defibrillate whenever possible during our pulse checks. Let's jump back to wide and irregular rhythms, and let's talk about polymorphic VTAC, or sometimes called torsades. So on the EKG, you're going to see wide complex. It's going to be irregular and usually does not have a pulse. Um, Every once in a while, you will catch this um, when they do have a pulse, and then they kind of go in this for a few seconds, and then they go back into a sinus rhythm. So you see patches of polymorphic VTAC. 
Um, but when they're in sustained polymorphic VTAC, they will not have a pulse. Um, and it can, it's very sinusoidal pattern, which means it goes up and it goes down. It goes up and goes down on the rhythm. It's not flat. So if you see a VTAC that's not always the same height, so sometimes the height of that complex is tall and then narrow and then tall then narrow, start thinking of polymorphic VTAC. Causes can be um, prolonged QTC. So a lot of that's due to drugs that they're taking, medications that are prescribed to them. Um, it could be electrolyte abnormalities. Hyper-K can cause this. Magnesium problems can cause this. Ischemia, which is like heart attack. Um, trauma, cardiac trauma can cause this. Or what we call Brugada syndrome, which is sometimes people are born with a malfunction and their um, electrical activity, and they're prone to go to this. So this is where we talk about people who have in their family history of sudden cardiac death at young ages. So if someone says, oh, I had a cousin who died at 18, just suddenly other teenagers, you always want to think in the back of your head, oh, they might have polymorphic VTAC. We try to recognize this early so they can get their implantable AICDs put in. Sajjan, so, want to take us through the management of this? So the management of these patients is just like all of the other arrhythmias, stable versus unstable. Unstable, meaning they don't have a pulse or they're hypotensive with a very thready pulse. And if that's the case, we are going to proceed towards cardioversion. Now in our pulseless ventricular tachycardia algorithm, we do have a consideration for Tersade de Pont, which is the sinusoidal pattern that we've been discussing. The treatment for that is actually two grams of IV mag sulfate, and that's given as a push. In these stable patients that may have a pulse or may have transient episodes of this polymorphic VTAC, we typically do everything we can to stabilize the patient and monitor them until we can get them to the hospital. Now, there are several other causes of a wide irregular rhythm, things that, of course, are very scary, ventricular fibrillation. This never has a pulse, and this will lead us down our cardiac arrest algorithm. And the last thing that we think about, again, more in the hospital setting, but atrial fibrillation with an accessory pathway. So this is a patient who has a history of abnormal electrical signaling in their heart. Often this is WPW or Wolf-Parkinson's-White syndrome. And that means they have an accessory pathway connecting their atria and their ventricles. If those patients develop atrial fibrillation, it can be very dangerous for them to go through the normal rate control medications that we give for atrial fibrillation. So just know these patients can be very unstable. They can end up in a very unstable rhythm like ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. And with all of these patients, please just be careful and monitor them, have the pads on, and be very cognizant of the potential for cardioversion. Let's talk about cardioversion for a second. You know, we've talked about all these different pathways, but just for everyone to remember, there's two types, right? Synchronized versus unsynchronized. So when you have a pulse, any pulse present, no matter what the rhythm, you're going to synchronize it. Um, and we talked about that helps to minimize that risk of that RNT phenomenon so it doesn't lead them into a worse rhythm. And we can also talk about pad placement. Uh, typically, we've always used an anterolateral approach, especially in the pulseless patients who we have difficulty turning them. Um, there is a lot of new data coming out from a lot of patient studies and data internationally through the ILCOR study, and they're actually going to release some updates here in 2020 that hopefully we'll be able to relay to you soon. Basically, the options are an anterolateral approach and an anterior posterior approach. So the anterior lateral approach is placing the 
anterior pad just to the left of the sternum anteriorly, and then placing the lateral pad around the fifth to the sixth intercostal space on the lateral aspect of the patient. The other option is the anterior posterior pad placement. This is using a similar anterior pad and then using a posterior pad just to the medial aspect of the patient's scapula. Okay, let's go to our take-home points. There's a lot of information, all these different um, tachydysrhythmias. So remember, we talked about narrow complex ones and wide complex ones. And then we talked about different treatments. So Sajan, what's your take-home point? The biggest take-home point is take a deep breath. We'll all get through it. Right, kind of like uh, Jordan talked about his medic that he was working with was super calm and kind of walked the patient through everything. And so it is tachycardia inducing to all of us when we see that because we've all seen it when it goes bad and that they convert out of this into a worse rhythm. And so I think we all get very nervous when we see this. Um, so yeah, staying calm in the heat of battle is great. So Patil um, recorded her take-home point before she had to take off to get her COVID vaccine. So you guys will hear her take-home point next. My take-home point is quickly decide if the patient is stable or unstable. And if they're stable, then, you know, you have medications, you have time. Um, And if they're unstable, just go to that electricity and shock them. Um, My take-home point um, for everyone is just don't be afraid of electricity. Um, I feel like when I first started in medicine and I had to shock my first couple patients, I was kind of afraid of that electricity. And now I realize electricity is our friend. But if you synchronize it, it's, it's your friend. It can help the patient. Sometimes medications can do more harm than good. And electricity is very pure. And it's a great therapeutic option. So thanks, everyone. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.